Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Good evening, church. Uh, if you're new with us, we are hopping in uh, to continue our series in the book of Ephesians and want to wish you an early happy Thanksgiving. And this passage uh, will talk a little bit about how and why we can be thankful to God. But tonight we're really looking at a really powerful prayer. And it's the prayer that Alex just read for us. If you're familiar with this book or been journeying with us, this is the second prayer that we see in this book. The very first prayer that the author prays for this brand new church plant that he's writing to was that they would have spiritual insight to know the blessings that God has given to them. So he's really praying in his first prayer in chapter one, God, would you give them understanding and insight to know all the ways that they have been blessed? And in this prayer, we're seeing not just that God would give them an understanding, but an application of those blessings. So Paul is saying, God, help them not just see it, but help them to live this out. And so this passage is really the transition passage of the entire book. The first three chapters are really strong about doctrine and beliefs. What are we to believe based on who God is and what he's done? Then the rest of the book is how to live this out. And this prayer today is really the transitional powerful thing that we must understand about God. And today's message is entitled this, Inner Strength from an Eternal Savior. Inner Strength from Eternal Savior. Uh, Have you guys ever seen the movie Unbroken by chance? It came out a few years ago. Unbroken, it's based on a true story of a young man named Louis uh, who had an unbroken inner strength in the midst of an unrelenting circumstances. If you've seen the movie, uh, Louis grew up as a really rough kid. He's on the verge of becoming imprisoned until his older brother sort of took him underneath his wing and trained him to be a track star. Uh, Louis excels at a sport and he eventually represents America in the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. And during his training, he learns to become resilient and disciplined. He gets an inner strength. And his brother's words during that training sort of resounded in his mind often. His brother said, if you can take it, you can make it. And that pushed him to overcome all of the adversity that he faced in his training. Well, he would need this because soon World II would break out and Louis enlisted in the military. And while he was in his plane, he was shot down and crashed in the Pacific where he was stranded for 47 days alone, trying to survive the elements of nature adrift on a raft. He's then captured by the enemy's Navy, thrown into two sequential prison camps. And in there, he's endured constant physical abuse at the hands of an angry prison commander who wants to break this unbreakable spirit of Louis. Well, if you know the story, the war ends and Louis is set free. And because of the inner strength that Louis finds in Jesus, he goes on to love and forgive that abusive prison commander that tried to break his spirit. Because of the love and forgiveness that he had for Christ, he could extend it to others. And see, this is truly what the unbroken story is about. It's about this inner strength that Louis has in the face of terrible external circumstances. And guys, this is the type of inner power that Paul is talking about 
to this church in Ephesus in this passage today. Let's look at it again in verse 14, this inner strength. It says this, Paul, the author, again, who helps start this brand new church, it says this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that God may grant to you, here it is, to be strengthened with power through his inner, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So guys, this is why we've titled today's message, Inner Strength from Eternal Savior. And guys, because of this passage is so rich, we're gonna actually spend two weeks just in this one passage from verse 14 through 21. And so I wanna jump in today and I really want you to see how can you and I have this inner strength when everything around us might be chaotic? If you think about your life just for a moment, what's happening inside of you? What are you facing in your job? What's it like relationally for you? How's your marriage? What's it like being a parent of your kids? How's it going on the inside for you? And for many of us, we might be weary and, and tired and struggling in the season of life. And to be honest with you, I'm a little weary myself. Our church planted uh, six months before a pandemic and the majority of our church plant life, all we know is a pandemic. I can barely see your faces, right? With the mask. And if you know my family recently, we were back and forth from North Carolina. I was officiating a couple weddings for some students that I had grown up and graduated that I was their student pastor for. We just adopted our second daughter, Shasera. I'm tired, right? I'm weary. And many of us can relate to this. You might've been through something or might be going through something now. And Paul's saying that we can have this inner, spiritual, deep strength that no matter what's happening externally, there's something that can hold on to us internally to help us through what we're facing externally. And I'm hoping that by the end of this passage or this message that your heart would really gain some muscle, gain some strength with whatever you're facing and going through. This is what God wants for us. And this is what Paul's praying for the church. And this is what we're gonna talk about today. So let's jump right in. Verse 14 starts like this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees, which is a posture of prayer. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Well, the question as we begin is, What's the reason Paul's talking about? He's saying, I'm going to God in prayer, but he says, for this reason. So what's the reason that he's going to God in prayer? Hey guys, this is everything that he's been writing about in the very first three chapters. For this reason, he can trust God as his father, he's saying. And then he just tells you three chapters beforehand, all the reasons of why we can go to God like a father. And we learned in the book so far that we have this grace in peace through what Jesus has done for us. And that's a reason why he goes to the Father in prayer. He goes because he has a heavenly Father that loves him, that's comforted him. Remember, Paul's in jail right now, but Paul gets hard circumstances. He shared his faith. People didn't like it. He ended up in prison. And he can go before this Father now in prayer because he knows that the Father loves him and can comfort him and give him strength, even the worst of circumstances. He's praying because he knows he has a benevolent father who directs him and, and guides him on the path of flourishing for Paul. Paul also can go to prayer because we learned in chapter one that he's been predestined. He's been chosen to be a part of God's family. God loved him and died for his sins. And he can go to God because he's been adopted to this family. He's been redeemed and forgiven of his past, present, and future sins. Paul goes to God in prayer because he's been given wisdom 
an insight. He's been reunified to God. He's being restored to God. And he knows eventually that God will restore all the brokenness that we see around us and in us and in our culture and with court hearings and things that are broken in our world. Paul can go before God because he knows that God's going to heal all that one day. He goes before God because he has an inheritance in God. He knows that he has a gospel that saved him and transformed him. He goes before God because he has the Holy Spirit that has sealed him and guaranteed him. And remember a few weeks ago, he goes before God because he knows that God can break down the wall of hostility that stands between people groups and preferences for people that believe in Christ. And we learned last week that he goes before God because this mystery of Christ has been made known now and the clarity of how God wants us to live our life for our own good is now, is now known. And guys, it's because of all these reasons that Paul comes to God in a posture of gratitude and prayer. That's why it says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. And so we're reminded, as I just did, I'm reminding you of why we can go before God as a father, not as a judge, not as one who's against us. We go as a father, a loving, gentle, bowing his knee to hear our prayers, God, because we're part of his family. And Paul says, it's for all of these reasons that I come before him because I know that he's gonna listen to me. If he did all of these things for me back then, redeemed me and he, he chose me and he forgave me. And if he gave me the Holy Spirit, then I know he's gonna keep caring for me. And for some of you, you need to hear that. Some of you, you need to be reminded that if God loved you so much that he would die for you, why would he just leave you in your circumstance? Why would he leave you in your hardship? Why would he leave you with what you're going through personally with your family, your friends, or whatever's stirring up in you this holiday season? God's not gonna leave you in that place. And that's what Paul's doing, saying for this reason, for all of these things you've done for me, for chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, all these blessings, I can come before you as a father because I know if you did that for me, you're not gonna leave me in this spot. So friend, whatever you're facing, whatever trial you feel like you're in, God will not leave you there alone. And Paul knows that. Why? Because he's sitting in a prison alone. And God is giving him an inner strength to write to very discouraged people in this new church. Remember, they're having some animosity between two people groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. They're facing external pressure from persecution. And Paul's reminding them, for this reason, I can go before God in prayer. So he has a posture of gratitude and of prayer. Gratitude, because again, all that God has done for him. And prayer, because he wants others to understand all that God has done for them as well. So let me ask you this. How have you been recently approaching God personally? Do you come before him with this heart of gratitude and this mindset of prayer? Do you come before him? Do you consider God to be a God that verse 20 says, he's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think? Do you, do you see God that way? That he is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think? Do you think of him this way? Often we don't, right? Because here's our experience. We pray, 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 silent. God, will you do this for me? Nothing. God, help me with this and my family and what's going on inside and nothing happens. Does that mean God is not at work? 
Or is it that you and I can't see the invisible hand of God? Guys, I bring this up because you may not remember all of my sermons and I totally understand that friends. Okay, I totally understand that. Okay, I happen to, because I spent a lot of time on it, pray through it. This time, one year ago, we were gathering in another church in Newton and we talked about prayer. We're in this sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus was teaching us in that passage how to pray. And he tells us that we like a little kid can go before the father and we can ask, we can knock and we can seek. You may not remember that, but in that message, I asked you what, let me get the specific words, what big, crazy, audacious, kingdom-sized prayers will you start praying? Because you know that God's a heavenly father and all the things that he's done for you, what will you start praying? And I went home and I wrote all mine out. I wrote all mine out. And I want to tell you today, after a year, this is what I prayed for. I prayed that God would save my grandfather of faith who is in his upper 90s. And remember me sharing with you? My grandfather put his faith in Christ the week that he died. When he spent 90 years of his life running from God, not loving God, not accepting our family's faith that was in him. My, my mom and my dad are here. I prayed to God, would you hear me? I bow before you. I know you can do these things. I prayed that God would allow us who just that week brought a little girl into our home named Shisera. I asked God, would you rescue her from the challenging circumstances that she's in? And would you allow us to be her adoptive family? This past Friday, church, we adopted Shasera, a part of our family. God heard me. We prayed that our friends in this church, specifically three of them that are in this room today, I prayed for their salvation. A married couple, a single guy. This past year, that married couple, that single guy, placed their faith in Jesus. They're in this room today. Guys, over and over, I'm looking at this list here. Over and over, I'm hearing God answer prayer and answer prayer and answer prayer. Things that I just thought that just would not happen. And it's powerful to see that he, he hears it and he answers. Guys, do we come before him like this for this reason? Because he saved me and because he adopted me, because he's redeemed me, because he chose me for the foundation of the world, because he gave me the Holy Spirit. I'm coming boldly before my father and I'm asking for everything. Even a side joke, in that same sermon, do you guys remember me saying that Kiana asked me for Disney World? Do you guys remember that? I was like, Kiana, it was so bold to ask me for everything. I asked for Disney World is what Kiana asked me. It's like, you want me to buy you the whole thing? She's like, yes, I want the whole thing. She was bold because she thought her daddy could do everything, can just do anything. Guys, do we have that boldness that we can just go before God like that? This is the heart that Paul had. And I want you to have that. I want you to test him in that way. Guys, I have these prayers. I wrote down literally when I came home from that sermon, what big, crazy, audacious kingdom-sized prayers will you start praying? Guys, Paul is challenging us. Go before him with gratitude. Remember, for this reason, what are all the reasons you can go before him in prayer? And then ask him, ask him. And friends, we have seen miracles in this small, tiny little church and my small, tiny little family We've watched people go from spiritual death to spiritual life, people that were orphans and challenging circumstances and brought them in. We've seen people 
and our church be cared for in their depression and their anxiety. People that didn't have good relationship with the family now have family within our church. We're watching something happen here because of the power of God. Now I find in the very beginning verse here, the posture that Paul's praying with is really interesting. The posture, because the normal posture of prayer among the Jewish people was standing, right? Was standing. We see this in Jesus' parable with the Pharisee and a tax collector. They're gathering a temple and they're both standing to pray. It was very common Jewish practice. Jesus even said when people would stand in the street and they would pray. It's very common practice. But we see here, there's a kneeling, there's a bowing, which is a little bit more rare. So what's that about? This kneeling that Paul is saying indicates an exceptional degree of earnestness in his prayer. Like he is hungry and desirous of something to happen. We see this only a few times in the Bible, this kneeling type thing when it was practiced to stand. If you guys remember Ezra, when he was confessing his own sins and the sins of his nation, they bowed down before God in earnestness for forgiveness. If you guys remember, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a few hours away from his crucifixion. He knew it was coming. He fell down and bowed before God in prayer in earnestness. We even see this in, with Stephen, one of the very first martyrs in the Christian faith. Before he faced martyrdom, he bowed down and prayed to God in earnestness. Now listen, there's no biblical rule about what posture we must adopt when praying, but kneeling often indicates a heart that's earnest and eager for God to move through our prayers. So what then, therefore, is Paul so earnest about, right? Because he's the one bowing. What's he so eager to do if this is the symbol of kneeling? We see three things here from verses 16 to 21, and that's this. He says, God, because of everything you've done for me beforehand, all the things in chapter one through three, I know this, that according to the riches of his God's glory, he may grant us three things. He comes before the Father with three things. God, would you give us inner strength and dwell in Christ and incomprehensible love? Do you see that in the text? You see the three things that he's praying for. God, give these people inner strength. They're struggling. They're weary. God, give them the indwelling Christ so they don't feel alone and isolated. And God, help them to comprehend your incomprehensible love by pointing them to the cross. And guys, in our brief time together, that's what we're going to unpack. Again, chapter one was Paul praying, God, help them to see these blessings. All the ones I listed about being chosen and adopted and break down the wall of hostility and you have the Holy Spirit, you have a guarantee, you have an inheritance in the future. All of that is Paul saying, God, I pray that they would, they would see that. They could understand that to happen. And then here he's saying, God, help them to apply it all. Help them to grasp it. Help them to walk in it. Help them not just experience or informationally understand it, but help them experientially live it out. Illustration of what Paul's praying for here. Do you guys have those gift cards in your wallet, in your purse, back pocket that have been given to you like five years ago, right? Christmas is coming up. Heather, you're like, no, I get that. I understand that from you, very much so. For me, I got lots of gift cards that have been given to me that just kind of sit there in the back wallet. They've got great potential of financial use, but they just sit there dormant. You have all of it sitting there, the finances, but it just goes unused. That's what Paul's saying. I want you to first know that you have a spiritual gift card in the back pocket, but I want you then to use it. 
So those are the two prayers. Chapter one, help them to understand what they have. Chapter three, help them to use it. And that's what we're seeing today. And that's the very first thing we're gonna see. So the, the goal of this prayer is that a series of great spiritual realities would take place in our lives. And because of those great spiritual realities being realized and if we live in them, it kind of unlocks this power that we see for the glory of God. And that's what we're gonna unpack these next couple weeks, that these great spiritual realities would take place in our lives and cause a power to happen in and through our lives. So the first thing Paul prays for is inner strength. Inner strength, if you're taking notes. I think this will be on the screen, potentially. Inner strength. Look again at verse 16. Paul says, I'm asking God to grant you, church. Remember this new church plants, very much like ours. Urban city, diverse people, different educational backgrounds, different ethnicities. And he's saying, I'm asking God to grant you, church, according to the riches of his glory, which by the way, if you're thinking about God's riches, they're limitless and they're infinite. So Paul's saying, I'm asking God to grant you according to your infinite riches. So I know you have a lot of it and you're a father, so you're willing to give it. I'm asking God that you will grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit and the inner being. That's a great prayer. Let me say that again. He's asking God that you and I in this room today would be strengthened with power through his spirit, God would make it happen. His spirit would happen. And where would that power be? In our inner being. Isn't that interesting? How often do you and I pray for our external circumstances to change so that our inner self can be better? How often do we do that? That's nowhere to be found in this verse. Paul is not praying for external circumstances to change. And friends, to be honest with you, that's the number one thing I pray for. Help my marriage to be better, help our church to continue to care and grow. Talking about external things. God, help us financially. God, help our family's health. God, if I would just have this change or this relationship be better, if that person just do this or that. But Paul's not saying that. He's talking about something inside. Because listen, if God can give you an inner strength, then guess what you can face? Just about anything on the outside. Does that make sense? So you and I might not have control over all of the outside things that happen to you in your life, what people say to you, how your boss treats you, how much money you make, uh, who you're dating, how your marriage is going. You might not have control over all of that. But what God's saying that you can tap into something on the inside with you and the Holy Spirit to help you endure what's happening on the outside. So what's that mean? What's that mean? Paul is praying that you would have a strong inner strength because when pressures and distresses and troubles tear up our inner self that devastate us and steal our joy and peace, it eventually renders us sort of useless to Christian service and the gospel witness. And we know this is true, guys, right? The longer we live, the longer the list of accumulative hardships build, right? pain, trouble, turmoil, disaster, disappointment, those things build and grow and it tears down us on the inside. We become to have a weak inner self. We have anxieties and doubt and fear and, and, and sin. Externally, things beat us down internally and we begin to have a weak inner life. And that leads us to frustration and mental strain and emotional, spiritual imbalance and Guys, if we really think about it, the inner self is really the eternal part of us, right? 
It's the real you, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your dreams, your hopes, your desires. The inner self is the eternal, the real part of you, the spirit, the soul, what you are on the inside. And what God is telling you here is that he wants your inner self strong. So let me ask you guys, what are you doing to keep your inner life with Christ strong? What are you doing with your inner life? Listen, if you're too busy to develop your inner life with God, then you will have little peace. Too busy, too little peace goes together. Listen, if you're filled though, like what this verse says, if you're filled with the fullness of God, if you know the love of Christ, if you can grasp the breadth and the depth and the length and the height of the love of Christ, if Christ is dwelling in you, and if your inner life with God is strong, then circumstances won't crush you. They'll be, as Tim Keller quotes, mosquito bites. <laughs> Inconvenient, but not injurious to us. They won't destroy us. Life circumstances won't because the inner self is stronger than the external. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, it's a great verse that says this. Paul, the same author of this is saying this. He says, we don't lose heart, but through our outer man, although it's decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. In other words, he's saying the outside of us is getting worse. I am aging. I've gained more weight this past year than I have in a while. I had vestibular migraines. I ended up in the ER, right? My outer self is wearing away, but the inside, the inner person, the inner life with God is growing stronger and stronger. So guys, in contrast to this perishing outer self, there must be an increasing strength that's in God. And guys, I want you to have this inner strength, this inner power, this inner spirit in your inner self. Guys, because when circumstances and hardships hit you, what can you do? You can retreat to your inner life with God and you can tap into the strength and communion that you built with him there. And guys, if, if you've ever been that spot before, that's one of the most refreshing and joyous experiences for the Christian life. When everything around you is just tearing down, everything around you is falling apart. Marriages, relationships, kids, your health, everything. But you feel steady in there somehow because you've built this communal relationship with God and your inner self, there's this strength you develop by walking with God it's the sweetest thing because you can look around like, yeah, I should be in shambles, but, but I'm not. And if you've not experienced that before, then this prayer is for you. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, but this is for you because we've all felt when life crushes us, we are crushed. But the hope of Christianity is that when outside circumstances crush us, we can stand strong in the midst of them still because of this inner strength that God gives to us. He wants our inner lives to be strong so they won't be easily swayed by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. And verse 16 tells us the Holy Spirit is the one that can infuse this strength in our inner being. That's precisely what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter five. He's saying that we are to be filled with this spirit. Galatians 5.16 says that we are to walk in the spirit. He says in Colossians 3.16 that you are to let the word of the spirit dwell in you richly. Because listen, when you yield your life over to the spirit, you find spiritual strength. And we learn from Acts that you receive 
power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So guys, listen, the, the, the resident power is already there. The spiritual strength is there, just like those extra uh, cards in your back pocket, those restaurant gift cards or whatever. It's a, it's a power that just lays dormant. But when you and I can tap into it with the Holy Spirit, we are given an inner strength. And that's the, the matter. We have to feed this inner strength. It's a richness of a power source, right? You and I, if we're gonna be given this by the Spirit, we've got to tap into the Spirit to get this strength. Let me illustrate for this for you. Um, our oldest is Kiana, right? And she's got this little lamp uh, that's like a starlight lamp. You click it on, it's kind of like a, a, a globe or a dome. You click it on and the lights kind of point up and there's little stars and moon kind of that surrounds the room. And so what she likes to do is turn off the light and then she likes to plug it on and then she likes to kind of look around. She can see and she dances underneath the stars is what she thinks, right? But what's interesting is the order in which she does this. She turns off the light and then she finds the lamp and struggles for like 10 minutes trying to find the outlet. She's stumbling, she's falling down. And I'm like, why don't you just plug it in first? And then you turn off the lights. I share this with you because Kiana in herself has all the power to see and walk well when the right things are happening at the right time, when things are plugged into the source. And friends, why we feel so weak and so feeble and so struggling is because we often don't tap into the source. When the circumstances of life turn off, we're not plugged into Christ. We don't actively spend time with the spirit and in his word, we're not with him often. So when life circumstances happen, there's not an inner strength. We're struggling. And my friends, this is what I wanna encourage you. I want us to see that God has given us his spirit and his word and his people to strengthen us. If you disconnect from one of those three things, you will not have an inner strength when life circumstances happen, right? God gives his spirit, his word, his people. And if we plug into those, no matter what we face, no matter what hardships, doesn't mean we won't hurt, doesn't mean we won't struggle, but it means we won't flounder and flake into sin and hurt and harm for ourselves and others. That's what Paul's praying for, for an inner strength. And that only comes when we're connected daily with the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you again, as we wrap up this point, are you developing your inner self, your inner life with God? Are you developing that through daily time of prayer, reading, spending time with your community group, your DNA group? Are you, are you in those rhythms often? If not, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, and I pray this for you, that you would step into that. Second point, and I think we might have to wait to the third point until next week. That's why we broke it up into two weeks. First point, the prayer is indwelling, or uh, first one is inner strength. Second one is indwelling Christ. That's the prayer. Listen, when you have a strong inner self, verse 17 says this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. A strong inner self has the result of Christ dwelling in your heart by faith. Now listen, if you're a Christian, you're like, don't I already have Christ dwelling in my heart? Absolutely. So then what does this verse have to do with then? And so if it says you've got to have a strong inner man, you've got to have a strong inner self, a strong walk with God, so that Christ can dwell in your hearts? What does that, what does that even mean? To understand what Paul's talking about here, we have to take a closer look at that word dwell. 
And this word in the Greek is kind of a really intense verb. It's split up into two different words. One means to live or dwell or settle down in a house. And the other one literally means to to double down, to sit down, to dwell down with. These two terms give us an idea of what Paul is describing to us. So Christ dwelling here literally means for him to settle down in your life. To have his rule and reign be invited into the heart of your home and sit down. So for a Christian, this is not a question whether Christ is in your life, but it is a question of whether you let him settle down his rule and reign in your life. Does that make sense? Some of us have a relationship with Jesus, but he is certainly not ruling and reigning. He's certainly not dwelling because there's other stuff that is on the throne of your heart. You've not let him rule and reign. You wanted him to forgive you, but you're in charge of your life. It's your ways of flourishing. And so what does this mean? Paul's praying this for us. And what he's saying here is for Christians to open up every door and every room of their lives and hearts to God, to literally let his rule and reign have his say about what's in that room. So with that, I want to give you this sort of elongated story, this illustration that will hopefully fill your hearts with wonder. It will help you really consider what it means for Christ to sit down his rule and reign in your life. Guys, in college, I read this really small book called My Heart, Christ's Home. Has everyone ever read that book before? It's a really small book by Robert Munger. And some of you might even have it in your, your house, right? It's a little book. It's like five or six pages. And it's a really interesting approach about looking into the Christian heart. Munger had likened the, the Christian heart to his own heart, and he likened it to a house and Christ coming into that house. And so in the book, he sort of uses this analogy of the heart being his home, and he invites Christ to come in to dwell, to settle down his rule and reign. And it goes like this. One evening, I invited Jesus Christ to dwell in me. What an entrance he made. It was not spectacular or an emotional thing, but it was a very real thing. Something happened at the center of my life. He came in the darkness of my heart and he turned on the light. He built a fire on the hearth and banished the chill. He started music in the room where there was silence. He filled the emptiness with his own loving, wonderful fellowship. I have never regretted opening the door to Christ and I never will. In the joy of this new relationship, I said to Jesus Christ, Lord, I want this heart of mine to be yours. I want you to settle down here and be perfectly at home. Everything I have belongs to you. And so let me show you around. The first room we went to was the study or the library. In my home, this room is of the mind. It's a very small room with very thick walls, he says, but it's a very important room. In a sense, the study is the control room for the entire house. So Jesus entered with me and he looked around at the books on the bookcase and the magazines on the table. And he looked at all the pictures on the wall. As I followed him and looked at his gaze, I became uncomfortable. 
Strangely, I had not felt self-conscious about all of this before, what was in my mind. But now that he was looking at these things, I felt embarrassed. Some books were there that his eyes were just too pure to behold. On the table, there were a few magazines that a Christian may not have business reading. As for the pictures on the walls, the imaginations of my thoughts in my mind, some of them were extremely shameful. So red-faced, I turned to him and said, Jesus, I know that this room needs to be cleaned up and, and, and made over. Will you help me make it be what it ought to be? Of course, he said. I'm glad to help you. First of all, take the things that you're reading and looking at, which are not helpful or pure or good or true, and discard them. And now put on the empty shelves the books of the Bible. Fill this library with scriptures and meditate it on it night and day. And as for those pictures on the wall, you will have difficulty controlling those images, but I have something that will help you. And he gave me a full-size portrait of him and what he's done. Jesus says, hang this centrally on the wall of your mind. From the study, I took Jesus to the dining room, the room of appetites and desires. I spent a lot of time and hard work there trying to satisfy my wants. I said to him, Jesus, this is my favorite room. I'm quite sure you'll be pleased with what we serve here. So he seated himself at the table with me and asked, what is on the menu for dinner? Well, I said, it's my favorite dishes. It's money and academic degrees and stocks with newspaper articles of fame and fortune as side dishes. These are the things that I like and I'm, I'm desiring. So when the food was placed before Jesus, he, he said nothing. And I observed that he did not eat of it. And I said to him, Jesus, don't you, don't you care for this food? What's the trouble? And he answered me, I have food to eat that, that you don't know about. If you want food that really satisfies you, do the will of the Father. Stop seeking your own pleasures and desires and satisfaction and seek to please me and then that food will satisfy you. There at the table, he gave me a taste of the joy of living under God's ways. What a flavor there was no food like this in the world and it alone satisfied me. After dinner, we went to the living room. This room was intimate and comfortable and I really liked it. Had a fireplace with overstuffed chairs and a sofa and had a quiet atmosphere. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Jesus said, let's come here often. It's secluded and quiet and we can fellowship right here together. Well, as a young Christian, I was thrilled I couldn't think of anything that I would rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in close companionship. He promised, I will be here every morning. Meet me here and let's start the day together. So morning after morning, I would come downstairs to the living room. He would take a book from the Bible, from the case. He would open it and read it together. He would unfold to me the wonders of God's saving truths and my heart sang as he shared the love and grace that he had towards me. These were wonderful mornings with him. However, little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why, I'm not sure. I thought I was too busy or I had too many responsibilities to spend this regular time with Christ. Though it wasn't unintentional, 
We all can understand it. It just happened this way. Finally, not only was this time shortened, but I began to miss days now and then. Urgent matters would crowd the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. I remember one morning rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. And I passed the living room and I noticed the door was opened. I looked in and I saw a fire in the fireplace and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly in dismay, I thought to myself, he is my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as a savior and a friend. And yet here I am neglecting time with him. I stopped and I turned and I hesitantly went in. With a downcast glance, I said, Jesus, would you forgive me? Have you been here all of these mornings? Jesus looked at him and said, yes, I told you I would be here every morning to meet with you. Remember, I love you. I have redeemed you at great cost and I even value your friendship. Even if you cannot keep the time for your own sake, do it with me. The truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he wants me to be with him and waits for me has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find time with him when with your Bible and with prayer, you may be together with him. Before long, he asked, do you have a workroom in your home? Out in the garage of the home of my heart, I had a workbench and some equipment, but it was not doing much with it. Once in a while, I would play around with a few gadgets, build a couple things, but it wasn't producing anything substantial. And I let Jesus out there. He looked over the workbench and said, well, this is quite well furnished and what you're, what you're producing here looks okay. And I'm, I'm curious, what are you producing with your life for the kingdom of God? He looked at one or two of the toys that I had thrown together on a bench and he held one up. Is this what you're doing for others and in your Christian life? Well, I said, Jesus, I know it isn't much and I really want to do more, but after all, I don't seem to have the strength or skill to do more than this. Jesus looked at him and said, would you like to do better? He asked, certainly, I replied. And Jesus said, all right, let me have your hands. Now relax in me and let my spirit work through you. I know that you are unskilled and clumsy and maybe awkward, but the Holy Spirit is the master workman. And if he controls your hands and your heart, he will work through you. Stepping around behind me, he put his strong hands under mine and he led and directed my hands to work for him. The more I relaxed and trusted in him, the more he was able to do with my life. He asked me then if I had a recreation room where I went to have fun and fellowship I was hoping he would not ask me about that because there were certain associations and activities that I wanted to keep out from him. One evening when I was on my way out with some buddies, he stopped with me and with a glance, he asked, hey, are you, are you going out tonight? I replied, yes. He said, good, I'd, I'd like to go with you. Oh, I answered rather awkwardly. I don't, I don't know, Lord Jesus. That would really be kind of awkward. And I don't know if you really enjoy where we're going to go and what I'm gonna do with my body. Let's go out together tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, we'll go to a Bible class at church. And tonight I have another appointment. I'm sorry, he said. I thought that when I came into your home, we were going to do everything together to be close companions. I just want you to know that I want you 
and I'm willing to go with you everywhere. Well, I mumbled, slipping out the door. We'll go someplace together tomorrow night. That evening, I spent some miserable hours doing things with my body that I regret and am shameful over. I felt rotten. What kind of friend was I to Jesus, deliberately leaving him out of my life, doing things and going places that I knew very well he would not enjoy? When I returned that evening, there was a light in his room. And I went up to it and walked over to him and I said, Lord, I have learned my lesson. I know now that I can't have good without you. From now on, we will do everything together in your way for my good and your glory. Then we went down to the rec room of the house and he transformed it. He brought in new friends, new excitement, new joys. Laughter and music have been ringing throughout the house ever since. And then one day, I found him waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here and it's upstairs and I think it's in that hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew exactly what he was talking about. There's a small closet up the stairs in the hall landing, just a few square feet in that closet behind locked and key. I had one or two little personal things that I didn't want anyone else to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead, rotting things left over from my old life. I wanted them for myself and I was afraid to admit that they were even there. Reluctantly, I went up the stairs with him. As he mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger and he pointed to the door. I was angry with him. That's the only way I can put it. I'd given him access to the library, to the dining room, to the living room, to the workroom, the rec room. And now he's asking about this little two by four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not giving him the key to this room. Well, he said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay here on the second floor with you with this smell, you're mistaken. I'll just go to the porch. And then he started down the stairs. When one comes to know the love of Christ, the worst thing that can happen is you sense your fellowship with him withdrawing. I had to give in. I wanted to draw close. So I said, I'll give you the key. I said, sadly, but you have to open the closet and you've got to clean it out. I haven't got the strength to do it. Jesus said, just give me the key and I'll take care. Authorize me to take care of that closet and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key to him. He took it. He walked over to the door. He opened it. He entered. He took out all the petrifying stuff that was rotting in there and he threw it away. No shame and no guilt to me. Then he cleaned the closet and he painted it. It was all done in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. And then a thought came to me. Lord, is there a chance that you would take over the management of this whole house and operate it for me like you did that closet? Would you take the responsibility to keep my whole life what it ought to be? His face lit up and he replied, I'd love to. In fact, that's what I died to do. That's what I want to do. You can't be a victorious Christian in your own strength. Let me do it through you and for you. This is my way. But he added slowly, I am just a guest. I have no authority to proceed since the property is not mine. Dropping to his knees, I said, Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, I'm going to be the servant. You are going to be the owner of this home, the master. 
and running as fast as I could. I went to the lockbox. I took the title of the deed of the house, describing its assets and liabilities and location situation. I eagerly signed over the house to him alone for him alone and for all of eternity. Here, I said, here it is, all that I am, all that I have forever. Now you run the house. I'll just remain with you as a servant and as a friend. And things ever since Jesus has settled down with his rule and reign in my home, my life has been for his glory. Guys, I tell you that ridiculously long story so that you can see the process of what it looks like for Christ to dwell or to sit down or to have his rule and reign in your life. So what does your library look like? Your thoughts What does your dining table look like? Your appetites, your desires? What does your recreational habits look like? What about your workroom? How you're seeking to do your job and your life? Does Christ reign over any of those? What about that two by four closet with pornography and lust and greed and hate or anger and stealing and lying, racism? What about that room? Does he have ruler reign there? My friends, this is what it looks like for Christ to come in to dwell, to sit down his rule and reign for your good. And my friends, when we give over the title of our life and our heart and our future, things begin to change for us. A heaviness, a weightiness that was there as we tried to live our own life is lifted off of us. So friends, we don't have even time to move into point number three. That's why again, why we're doing two points of it. But I want you to see for a brief moment when you grasp this type of love, when Christ settles down in the home of your life, he dominates every corner of it with an incomprehensible love that your heart desires most. When he settles down and dwells in your life and heart, when you invite him in and spend daily time with him, he sheds his love into every corner of your life to the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your life and experiences Christ fills it with his love for you. People always say the greatest thing in the world is to love and to be loved. The greatest emotion in the world is to feel love. It's the most exhilarating and wonderful thing there is. And to feel love and to be loved is the epitome of human joy. And this is precisely what a Christian experiences when they come completely committed over to him. And my friends, my heart for this message is for simply just have two action points, reflect and replenish, reflect and replenish. Guys, this week, if you would be like Paul, would you reflect like he did when he says, for this reason, I come to you. Would you reflect on all of the goodness of God, everything he's answered in prayer, everything he's done for you? Would you go before him? Reflect on his goodness this Thanksgiving week. Think about what he's done on your behalf. And then would you replenish yourself with him? Would you be strengthened in your inner being with the word of God, with the people of God? And when you do that, you will begin to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God. The more you're with him, the more steady and sure you are in those insecurities and challenges. The more you grasp the love of God, the more things change in your heart and how you handle your life. Church, as we go into Thanksgiving week, would you please reflect and replenish yourself in the goodness of God. Let's pray.